This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. My guest is Helen Benedict, whose latest book is titled Map of Hope and Sorrow, Stories of Refugees Trapped in Greece. She's the co-author with Iyad Awadonen, who is a refugee over there, and we will talk a little about him as well. And we're going to be talking about refugees in Greece, which is an area that we don't hear about, but it's a humanitarian crisis that needs to be addressed. Helen Benedict is the author of seven novels, including Wolf Season and Sand Queen, and I spoke to Helen Benedict about both of those. There are six nonfiction works counting this one, and there is also a play. But let's go back to when this began, which I guess was before the pandemic. How did you find out about these refugees And how did you decide that you were going to write a book about them? Well, it was in the news. It was in the news quite a lot around 2015 and 16. And I had already been writing about the Iraq war, including in those two novels that I did that you mentioned that you interviewed me about before. I had been reading when the greatest number of Syrians were fleeing the Syrian civil war. A lot of them were ending up on the island of Lesbos in the northern Aegean because it's so close to Turkey. And to get there, everybody from the Middle East goes through Turkey because that's the way the geography is laid out. And there were some articles about the terrible conditions on the island of Lesbos. Now, I knew that area because back in 1975, when I was a student, I had traveled around that area of Greece, which at a time, very interesting time in Greek history, But I was curious to go back and see what it was like all these decades later with all the influx of refugees coming in. And I came to realize that a lot of Iraqis I knew had fled the Iraq war and gone to Damascus. And now, after the war there started in in Syria started in 2011, they were having to flee again, being like double refugees. And I was very, nobody was writing about that. And I was very intrigued by that because by that time I'd been interviewing Iraqi refugees and I had come to be very moved by them and impressed by their their dignity, their lack of anger and their determination to make a new life even in the country that had invaded them. So originally I thought, I'm going to not go to to Lesbos because that's where all the other journalists go. But there's another island I know of because I've been there before. Samos, which also has a refugee camp, which is smaller, but even more overcrowded, although I didn't know that part at the time. So I'm going to go where all everybody else isn't going and see if I can find some doubly displaced Iraqis. Were you at that point thinking in terms of a book, in terms of an article? Had it come to that? Actually, I was thinking in terms of a novel. I was thinking I had written a novel that was set in a made-up fantasy place, and I wasn't happy with it. But it was about a group of women who were in some kind of dire circumstance who were telling each other their stories, and I thought maybe this would work better set in a refugee camp. So I went there in 2018, June of 2018, the first time, to meet people and just talk to them, especially women if I could find them, about how do they live from day to day in the refugee camp. 
I did not go there thinking I was going to write articles or do journalism or even ask them about their backstories because I knew by then you have to win people's trust and be if you don't want to re-traumatize them. Just the question, why did you leave, opens up killed children, bombed houses, horrible traumas. You don't just blurt out a question like that without thinking about it. So that was my original motivation. But then my second day there, I wandered into a stationery shop to buy a map because I can figure out where <laughs> where I was. There was a young man in the stationery shop who was asking for the, the shopkeeper for something in, in very good English and with exquisite manners. It really struck me how, how polite he was. And I knew he must be a refugee because he was he had a strong accent and you know and he didn't look Greek. So I just accosted him and said, Oh, my name is Helen. Can I take you for a coffee? And the shopkeeper who spoke English too said, You better explain why. <laughs> Who is this strange woman, you know, doing this? And so I said, I'm I'm researching a book. And that was Iad, my co-author. And he couldn't meet me at the time, but we arranged to meet the next day because I had an official tour of the camp that had taken me months to set up. So we were going to meet inside the camp the next day. I went up to the camp the next day. It was 95 degrees. I got there. There was no shade. The camp manager, who I was supposed to be able to meet, kept me waiting for one and a half hours in the sun and then cancelled. She didn't want journalists or writers or photographers in that camp. She was a really awful person and she ran that camp brutally. But then he had popped up next to me, meeting me as arranged, and he had with him a young man called Hassan. And he said, I want you to meet Hassan, my friend Hassan. He is a man with no hope. And I of course, immediately wanted to know why. So I said, can we talk? And Iad looked around and said, let's go out of the camp up the mountain and get away from the eyes of the police. A quick question, Pierre. It's not a prison because people can leave the camp. Right. But it's kind of like um, a homeless shelter where at a certain time they have to be in or they're stuck outside. And do they serve food? How does that work? Well, I do describe all of that in detail in the book. But it was initially a military base designed to hold something like 648 people in shipping containers, you know, those metal boxes. It's set up on the side of a mountain, kind of climbing up a very steep mountain, surrounded by concrete walls and hurricane fences and barbed wire, with big glaring prison-like lights looking down on you. There is a food service that you have to wait in line three to six hours to get your food from a window in one of the shipping containers. The food is so awful that most people can't eat it without getting sick. But when I got there in 2018, there were 3,000 asylum seekers there. It was built for 650. They were sprawled in tents all over the place. Between all the shipping containers were thousands of tents crammed together in every single inch with just dirt paths between them and a concrete path around the edge, all very really filthy, like litter everywhere, sacks of garbage, rats, porta potties that were so overused they were black inside, they were unusable, terrible stench of feces through the whole place. And people had sprawled outside of the camp 
and built their own tents or shelters, sprawled kind of abandoned olive groves all around the outside of the camp. And those people had no access to any kind of sanitation, bathrooms, water, anything. These are tourist islands as well. Is there interaction? Because these people are coming out of the camp during the day and they're hanging out in olive groves where tourists might walk. Yeah. Yes. And that's one of the ironies about this island. It's a very, very beautiful island. But there are a lot of tourists who go there and don't even know about the refugee camp because it's set in Barbados, this one town, which isn't a main tourist destination. Mostly uh, the tourists go to other parts of the island. It's a pretty small island, but even so. But the thing is, so what? You know, it's not as if the refugees are an eyesore. They're just people. <laughs> you know, so there was a lot of worry on the part of the Greeks. They like to say that refugees were ruining the tourist industry. But that was not true. I had a piece in the New York Times about this. And I got all these letters saying, I've been going to, to Samos for years. I didn't even know there was a refugee camp there. So much for it ruining tourism. Greece was suffering from a drop in tourism, or at least that area was. But it was for other reasons. It was for economic reasons. It was to do with the shipping companies, fashion, not to do with the refugees. That was an era when there were a lot of fires in Greece too, weren't there? That started later. That started happening around 2019, the year later, 2020, because it got more and more and more crowded. So in 2018, there were, there were 3,000 people. At one point, it ballooned up to 8,000 people living in that camp and around that camp. I describe it as um, it looks like a slum inside a prison. But yes, originally, there were no closing gates and people were free to come and go as they wished. Then later on, there was a curfew. They had to be back by a certain time. And now it's a whole other picture. Now it's they closed that camp and they opened a closed, like a prison in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the island. And that's where people are sent now and they can't leave at all. And they're surveilled day and night. Which makes it kind of like going from hell to hell. Yes. So, you know, the justification for this new concentration camp-like prison that they've built, which I saw with my own eyes, I went to see it, it was horrifying, is that, oh, people can live in more comfort. They're not living in that filthy, disgusting camp. But it, it, but from the point of view of the people who were there, they have less freedom, fewer services, no NGO, no trees, no shrubs, no, it's this bare earth. They're surrounded, they're in the middle of this kind of circle of mountains, no village you can walk to, no cafes, no escape. You're, it's just prison. And yet these people are not criminals. They're only exercising their human right, their international human right to request asylum. They're asylum seekers. So it's, it's a violation of their rights and of international law to imprison them like this. Helen Benedict, let's talk a little about the book itself. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to get into too much detail about the people in the book because that's the book. Right. It tells their story. Hassan's story, he's from Syria. Asmahan, who is a pregnant woman also from Syria. Evans, a gay man from Nigeria. Mersal, a young woman from Afghanistan. And Calvin, a political refugee from Cameroon. And, of course, Iyad, who is another refugee from Syria, right? Right. These are often educated people. 
Some of them were, were in poverty, and all of them had to leave because of war or persecution of one sort or another. There's also a chapter in there with various stories about the women in the camps, which is particularly horrendous. Obviously, you made choices because each of these people has a very distinctive story. But I'm going to ask you about a couple of other stories that are not in the book. Stories that almost duplicate, but that you felt would duplicate in the book. So let's talk about a couple of those. One man, one woman. Who's someone who's not in the book who could have been in the book? Well, there's a young man from Sierra Leone called York who is also a gay refugee, and I met on Samos the same time I met Evans. And his story is amazing, and the only reason I couldn't include it is because I couldn't spend enough time with him to get the whole story that I needed. So he grew up very wealthy in the capital of Sierra Leone, Freetown. His father was the biggest businessman there. His mother adored him. He was They actually called him Prince. They lived in a huge mansion. He uh, had beautiful clothes. He had everything he wanted. He was being taught his father's business. He was expected to go to university. His father had, himself had degrees from the U.S. But he was gay in a country where that's illegal. Then, uh, really sadly, and he said his mother would have been okay with that, and even his father would have probably been okay with that. But he would have had to live a secret life. But he was prepared to do that. And he had a gay uncle who was kind of teaching him how to live a secret life. And if you're rich and privileged, as he was, you can probably get away with that. But then when he was 16, his parents were killed in a car crash and he was orphaned. He had an uncle, his mother's younger brother, who was supposed to sort of be his guardian. But his uncle wanted the inheritance. He wanted all the money. He wanted the business. So he began to sabotage York at every chance. And then he caught York with his boyfriend, and he called the police, because this was his chance to get rid of York. So they were caught, they were beaten up really severely, and arrested. York was unconscious, he'd been beaten up so badly. He woke up in the hospital, one eye, he couldn't see out of one eye, he was handcuffed to the bed. He didn't know what had happened to his lover. He told the police guard, the guard in the hospital, I need to go to the bathroom. And the guard unlocked his handcuffs and took him to the bathroom and waited outside. And in the bathroom, there was a tiny window. York is a very small, slight young man. By the way, both he and Evans were only 22 when I met them. He got out of the window and he ran. He ran to a friend and he escaped Sierra Leone. He later found out that his lover was sentenced to life imprisonment with hard labor just for being gay. Most of the refugees from the Middle East go to Turkey, which is another issue. Yeah. But let's talk about York for a second. Where did he go and how did he wind up in Greece? He went to Guinea. He went through various countries, Iran and then Turkey, because they want to get to Europe, just like Middle Easterners want to get to Europe, because everybody believes that when they get to Europe, they will meet with the dignity and the rights and respect that any human being is due. And, and they still believe that in most of the world, no matter how badly we behave. So that's what he wanted. And so he did go through the same, the Turkey uh, route, the Turkish route, and the boat 
as the Middle Easterners I talked to. And that's how we ended up on Samos. And then this is where the, the part about the gay refugee, what, what LGBTQ refugees face, which is that you end up in a camp with a lot of your countrymen who may be there for other reasons, political refugees or whatever, but they might still have the same homophobic attitudes that you met at home. So you can be in danger from your own fellow refugees. And that's what happened to York. So he hid it for a long time. And he, he was part of the community and even kind of one of the leaders of his community of refugees of other Sierra Leoneans. But then when he told his story to get asylum, they didn't believe it. It's all this stuff about his uncle and everything. It does sound a little fairy tale-ish, you know. It's like the evil uncle yeah. out of a fairy tale. I believe it's true, and I've seen the warrant for his arrest, and I've seen the wanted poster, but the asylum people did not. And so he was rejected once and twice and three times. He was rejected, and they didn't believe he was gay, and they didn't believe he was persecuted. And then his community found out why he was rejected, and they turned against him too. So he then had to run from Samos. He had to run from his fellow refugees, and he ran he got over the border to Macedonia and more or less walked all the way to Italy, where he finally got an ID card and was able to borrow money and get himself to the Netherlands, where he's now awaiting asylum. So he is in the Netherlands safely the Netherlands. now. Yeah, a story walking through country after country, walking in sneakers over snow-covered mountains, being robbed and beaten up and raped by smugglers and soldiers is just unbelievable. I want to come to something that you talked about in talking about York. The truth of the tales themselves, because as I was reading them, particularly the story of Asmahan and what she went through, and the fact that she is, by her own words, a little bit sketchy as a person, I start wondering, well, are they slightly exaggerating? How do you tell the truth from lies, especially from people who tell you, back home I was a liar? You tell the story of how York does it, that nobody believes him, but how do you coordinate to figure out which are not telling the quite truth, which are exaggerating, because these stories are so horrific? Yeah, there are two keys to that. And this is the training I have as a journalism professor. <laughs> One is we interviewed all these people for months and months and months, years in some cases, and talked to them for countless hours over and over and over again. And we went through their story. This is an oral history approach. You ask people to retell their stories, the same stories, over and over. And you go back and say, I didn't quite understand this. Tell me that again. Tell me that again. Because each time, memory is fallible, of course, anyway. Um, but they also, there might be things they feel a bit embarrassed about at first or things that they just forget. So each time you go over it, you hone it and correct it. And then you also ask for all the proof you can. So you ask to see any kind of documents that they have, like of arrests, of imprisonments, of doctor's reports about torture, wanted posters, so that you can verify as much as possible what they say. But in the end, and I think it's dishonest not to admit this on the part of any journalist who does in-depth interviews like this. In the end, it's your guts. You spend a lot of time with someone, and in the end, it's just your sense of whether they're telling the 
You read their body language, their eye movements, and the way you relate to each other to sense whether they're telling you the truth. And sometimes they'll say, you know, I didn't quite tell you that right. Or, but I didn't really have a problem with any of that with any of the people in the book. I did have a problem with some of the other people who aren't in the book occasionally where I wasn't quite sure how much they were twisting things in their, to their own advantage. But mostly, mostly the, you know, people, they had all taken such risks of their lives to, to, to get out of their, where they were that obviously they didn't make that up. And I, I also have a background of having spent years and years and years interviewing survivors of rape. And that's taught me a lot about about believing people and and assessing truth, you know, the truth. But I can't guarantee. I'm sure that all these stories are true, but in the end, you'll have to judge for yourself when you read them. The fact that Iad is himself a refugee, and you can guarantee him, he's also pretty aware of the difference between what he's hearing and what he knows from his own experience, I would guess, as well. Yes, yes. And and he was so invaluable. He was the one who interviewed Asmahan, and he met her when they were fellow refugees in the camp that, that, that they were moved to. He was moved to after Samos. And they just spent night after night, month after month, just sitting and talking to each other because there's nothing else you can do. You're not allowed to work. You're not allowed to go to school. You know, there's nothing to do except talk to people. So they were going over their memories for months and months anyway, but even before we thought of doing this book. And they were really close friends, and he had helped her a lot. So he weaves his own story and what's sort of happening to him through his story about her or her story about her. So it's kind of a double story in that way. But yes, he, he because he shared that experience of being a refugee and of going, you know, dealing with smugglers and going through this incredibly dangerous journey to get out of Syria all the way to Greece. He knows from the inside what it's like. Helen Benedict, a woman who wasn't in there to get balance. Let's talk quickly about this woman who didn't go in the book. Well, there was a one woman I met there. She was a political refugee from a East African country. And I can't even say which country because she wouldn't, didn't want me to ever. Originally, she was going to be in the book, and she got too afraid for her family back at home and, and her, putting them in danger. So she's not in the book at all, and I can't, as I said, can't meant to say the country. But she was tremendously helpful to me with other women because she introduced me to a lot of other women, Eritreans and Palestinians and Somalis and so on. But her own story was quite dramatic. She was a university lecturer back in her country. She was married to a top-notch lawyer. They had two children who were in school, maybe three children in school. But she was involved with the opposition to the dictatorial government. She got targeted by them, and she had actually gone to Turkey on business to attend a conference. And she got a call from her lawyer saying, you can't come back, there's a warrant out for your arrest. If you get arrested in that country because you've been a dissident you will you will be tortured and you will be disappeared. So suddenly, with one little suitcase for overnight, she could not go home, and she could not go home to her family without putting them in danger, and she suddenly found herself in a refugee camp, really. She had to just flee as far away from the sphere of influence 
you know, the government of her country had, which included in Turkey, so she had to get out of Turkey. That was a dramatic story and, and, and kind of not what people think about when they think about refugees. You know, most of us have this idea that refugees are all kind of poor and desperate. That's far from the truth. There are two people in my book who are the children of doctors. Is she still in a camp? No, she got asylum. She won asylum, and she, but she is still in Greece. Helen Benedict, the generalized story of what happens when someone finally gets into Turkey, how do they get over to Greece? So they have to sneak across the border into Turkey unless they're a lecturer coming yeah. in by plane. Yeah, to get to Turkey, depending on where you're coming from, yeah, you have to get over the border. Some some people from Afghanistan, you have to get go through Iran first, and that's got its own dangers. But the borders are guarded, sometimes with giant walls, sometimes with ditches and barbed wire, and with patrol guards who want to push you back. Sometimes people sneak through a tunnel underneath, dug underneath a fence. Sometimes you've just got to run through showers of bullets. You do it in the middle of the night. You preferably do it in bad weather when, when there are fewer police out. You usually do it with the help of a smuggler who might have paid off some of the border guards to look the other way for a few minutes. You risk your life and a lot of people are killed uh, or caught and turned back. And so that's harrowing. But to get to those borders often involves you know, walking over mountains for days and days and days. One of the Marsal describes how she had, they had to walk for so long, she had two little sisters, a mother and father, that her feet swelled to twice their normal size because they were walking for so many days. And on top of that, if they're in an area that is questionable because of war, they have to kind of manipulate between two or three different groups. So you've got ISIS, you've got the Assad people, you've got the people who are fighting ISIS and Assad. So even to get there, anywhere along the way, you might be stopped and might even be recruited <laughs> against yeah. your will into an army yeah. if you're a man. If you're a man, yes. Or the Taliban if it's Afghanistan, depending. Um, yeah, so there's danger everywhere. And uh, the way the smugglers work is interesting because they work in chains. You know, so you get passed from one smuggler to the next, to the next, to the next, all of which costs a lot of money. Often people you have to use up their entire life savings. That's why so many refugees end up, do arrive penniless regardless of their, of their status at home because they had to spend all their money just to, to get out. Some of those smugglers are crooks themselves, and they they will rob and rape. You know, so it's incredibly, it's unspeakably dangerous this journey. And imagine doing it with little children. Once they get into Turkey, why are they so busy trying to escape Turkey? If you're Syrian, Turkey does not give you a recognition as a refugee, so you are there with no rights. They call you guests. So you don't have the rights of a citizen and you don't have the rights of a of a refugee. Um, so very often you will get jobs paid under the table, a dollar a week kind of pay, two dollars a week. If you ask for your pay, you couldn't be bothered to pay. You'll just say, I'll turn you into the police. We'll fire you. Uh, the women are, are preyed on sexually a lot. So there's no protection, no safety, and no way you can work really hard for a year and end up with nothing. 
you can't save because you never paid enough. And so it, it's just so exploitative. And then furthermore, ISIS, Assad, and the Taliban have people in Turkey who will sniff you out and often, or the police will catch you and turn you over to them. And you'll be back in the very hands that you just tried to run away from. So for some people who might be coming from certain places where they can be established as refugees, they might decide to stay, or they're still thinking, I got to get out of here. Yeah. Hassan, for example, he stayed for a while. He was managing, you know, on menial jobs, but he had friends there and he had his brother visiting occasionally. So he had a little more of a community and he might have tried it, but he knew that he would never get anywhere in his life. He would never get beyond cleaning floors or basic, basic work. As a young man, he wanted more than that in his life. He didn't want to just be stuck in that rut where he could never be the society would not allow him to advance anywhere helen benedict the next step is getting from turkey to greece not too long ago a couple of weeks ago when we're recording this there was another story about a boat that capsized so they have smugglers they sneak out at night and there's one case of a guy who was told guess what you're the rower right these inflatable rubber dinghies that look like kind of flattened balloons and an outboard motor. And the smugglers, what they do is they stuff the boats with too many people so that they're barely above the water and they push you out and then they jump off and abandon you. And so somebody there has to, has to drive the boat. Otherwise you'll just, you'll just float around until it, you know, until you'll die. <laughs> But it's a criminal act to drive a boat of refugees in Greece. Even if you are the refugee and you have to do it to save everybody's lives, you will be arrested. And there are thousands of people in prison in Greece for having driven their own boats. And if they're lucky, they're picked up fairly quickly by Greece? Or who picks them up? Well, sometimes they make it to a shore themselves. There's an invisible line in the Aegean that's half Turkish waters and half Greek waters. You might get caught by the Turkish coast guard and then you'll be sent back. If you get get across the invisible line, there is the Greek coast guard and then there's Frontex, which is the name of the European Union's coast guard. And they're the ones who are supposed to rescue you and tow you ashore or they, they take you aboard and tow the boat ashore. However, what's been happening lately is instead of rescuing people, both those coast guards, the EU coast guard, worst of all, is pushing people back out to sea. And that's where you get these capsized and 20 or 30 people die. Yeah. I mean, that was happening before, but now it's happening at a faster rate because of these pushbacks. Greece denies that they do this, completely denies it. But there have been independent verifications of many that have, have seen. Now, when they land in Greece... I would guess that they go to the authorities, ask for refugee status, and they're thrown in camps? Yes, and they're, they're processed first. You know, I mean, One of the chilling little facts that I found out is that a number in black ink is written on your hand. And, you know, we know what that evokes. I mean, it's not tattooed, but that's really creepy. Also, the word that the Greeks use for the ID that you get is ausweich. 
it's the German word for ID leftover from when from the Nazis when World War when they were occupying Greece. So there's this nasty echo with with Nazis and uh, that time. Yeah, so they they take your passports away. They check through your phone to see if they can if you're ISIS or anything, and then they put you in the camp and you have to wait sometimes years. You have to go through two interviews. The first interview to see whether they can send you back to Turkey. So you have to prove that Turkey isn't safe for you. If you don't pass it, they'll deport you. If you if you do pass it, then you have to wait often years now. It used to be weeks and now it's years to get the actual asylum interview to see whether you'll get asylum in Greece. And then at that point, if they pass that, they're free in Europe unless they want to go, say, to Britain, in which case they have even more, right? Right. Well, they can't go to Britain. They've, so eventually, when you get refugee status, you get a, a passport that allows you to go to the Schengen countries, which is, you know, the countries in the EU minus a few. But it takes a long, 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 long time, and it's very expensive to get all those documents as well. And there, since the new government came in to Greece in 2019, once you get refugee status, you're kicked off any kind of help. So if you have government-subsidized housing, you are evicted. You are not allowed free medical health care anymore. You're not allowed. You're not allowed any kind of allowance while you're trying to find a job. You're just completely kicked out on your own. So a lot of people end up destitute because Greece is so poor. It's, you know, it's hard enough for a Greek to find a job. And there's and there's a lot of racism and Islamophobia. People won't rent their apartments or hire to refugees. It doesn't get easier. And now Italy has a right-wing government, which is going to make it harder for one country is pretty much the end of it for them. Yeah, yeah. It's happening all over. Um, the UK, which is, of course, is not part of the EU anymore, is terrible to refugees. And they, they put them in detention centers. They don't let them work while they're asylum seekers. And now, you know, they, the new gov, the government, not the new government, the old government, the Boris Johnson, the, whether it's Liz Truss or the new guy, it doesn't matter who they are. They all have the same policies towards refugees, which is we don't want you. And then, of course, the United States has has its own negative policies toward refugees, which doesn't make it easier. Right. And there's a completely different group coming from a different well, place. Actually, I want to say something about that because I think the policies here have an, a lot to do with Greece and with the rest of Europe because it got significantly worse after Trump was elected here and began you know, instigating his children in cages, family separation, all Mexicans are rapists, Muslim ban policies. And that opened the door to right-wingers all over the world to be equally horrible to refugees. And it was very noticeable. It gave permission. So I think there's a connection, very tight connection. There's now a new group of refugees, and I'm just wondering if they're going to suffer the same fate, which is people escaping from men escaping from Russia. Well, I don't know because, of course, Ukrainians have had a very different kind of reception than we saw for either Syrians or Afghans or other refugees have come. There's always a, an initial burst of generosity when people are first forced out and everyone's paying attention to the war of the moment. 
nonetheless, the, the burst of generosity that happened towards the Ukrainians has been markedly different and better than it was. I mean, I saw it when I went to Iceland in May. There was a sign in the airport that said, if you are seeking refuge from Ukraine, come this way, we'll give you a visa. And when I told Iyad about that, he said, I have never seen a sign like that for Syrians. <laughs> you know, <laughs> When it comes to white Christian refugees, it is a very different attitude in the West. There's just no denying it, and I think it's important to say it out loud. I know Russians, there will be a lot of prejudice against Russians. I bet a lot of them will, will say that they're Ukrainian, <laughs> because what do we know the difference? But I, it's not going to be like it, like the racism and Islamophobia is. Okay, the camps themselves, and we're moving in the direction of if anything, what can we do and what do NGOs do? But with these thousands of people in these multiple camps in Greece at the moment and in the recent past, I'm going to throw some quick words at you and maybe quickly give an update on what it's like for those refugees. So let's start with healthcare. Well, in the camp in Samos, there was one doctor for 3,000 to 8,000 people and two nurses. So to get see healthcare, you wait for hours and hours and hours and hours. Now, if MSF or Doctors Without Borders is working there or IRC or some, you might have better luck. Most of the refugees I've met, I've talked to, got much better treatment from MSF than they ever got from the from the camp. But but those places, you know, those NGOs come and go, and sometimes they're not welcomed by the authorities. So that can be complicated. Food, you described it as awful. Yeah, some of it's rancid, some of it's rotten, some of it is just so f foreign to the for, to the food that people are used to that they can't digest it. And then some often it's just not enough. You wait for six hours in the line, you get there and they run out. That kind of thing would happen too. So, but you you get a small allowance when you're in the camp, or you do in some camps. Although it's been getting taken away as well. So you buy a little bit of food when you can. But people often have to live on very little rice, 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 and more rice kind of thing. Well, we've discussed lodging, which is tents and storage vans, boredom. Yes. Well, when you can't work, you can't go to school, and you're waiting and you're anxious, there's this terrible erosion that happens to your soul. I mean, you need a lot of gumption and a lot of determination to keep going to get to a new life that you that you know are after. And when you're just forcibly paralyzed, all you can do is worry, 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 and it's very hard to hold on to that gumption. One thing I noticed is that almost everyone who can volunteers for any NGOs around because they would rather work for free than do nothing. Rape. Yes. Probably about at least 90%, if not more, of the women who arrive in a refugee camp anywhere have already been raped either at war at home or on the way in the danger of the journey, especially if they're traveling alone. So they arrive with that trauma and those horrible memories already. And there's no special protection. There's no... like area where they can live. There's no locks. One woman told me my only protection is the padlock I have on the zipper of my tent. And so you are surrounded by war-traumatized people, by angry people, frustrated people, lonely people. 
And, you know, there can be a very violent atmosphere that's terrifying for women. So most of the women told me they would never leave their tents or their containers at night to go to the bathroom or anything that was much too dangerous. And he was living in, in this fear, fear of being attacked all the time. And rape was happening. Theft, which I guess your few possessions might disappear overnight. They might, but I didn't hear about that that much. I mean, I don't want to make it seem as if these places where everybody's against each other, there's an awful lot of camaraderie and generosity in helping each other, including across racial and ethnic lines, cooking together, working together to build something, helping other people together, a lot of generosity. That's one of the things that moved me so much, actually, is that in circumstances where I thought people might be turning on each other and being horrible all the time, it wasn't like that. That happened, yes, but it's easily counterbalanced by the other side, I would say. And then I have being gay, and I would guess that there are probably gay groups that people immediately flock to, lesbians and gay men, trans people will immediately kind of find their group, which is a kind of protection. Not really. Really? Because they all have to hide, because it's too dangerous to be out. That's why when this young man, Dan Chapman, who was a volunteer there from England, started an LGBTQ support group, the first one ever in that camp, it had to be secret. And he would only let people in who had been referred by a doctor or a psychologist. He couldn't just turn up and say, I'm gay, I want to be in this group. Or my friends said, told me about it. That wasn't good enough. He had to vet people that much because people could be go in as plants. And these are in the camps in Samos and Lesbos and wherever, in many of the camps. Okay, being young, I guess there's no education. Some of the youngest children for a while were able to go to a local school, but only a tiny proportion of them. There was an NGO that opened a, sc a school that was sort of like an elementary school. It was wonderful, but it had to leave when they closed that camp and moved everyone to the prison. But once you were a teenager, and again, it only could serve a small portion of the people there. Teenagers and college age, nope, your education is completely dropped. Being old. <laughs> Being old is hard. It's very hard there because there's no comfort. There's no, you know, you have to walk up and down hills. You have to carry things. You have to sleep on the ground. You have to, you have, you have to go into the woods to use a bathroom. You know, it's it's every moment is very grueling. So most old people just they just sit all day, and just as many women, they just sit in their tiny tents all day, day and night, day and night, because they're afraid to go out or they're unhealthy, and they only get un more unhealthy doing that. COVID. Yes. So when COVID came along, or you know, the camp tried to shut down. And actually, I thought there were going to be horrible, you know, rampant <laughs> waves of the epidemic inside the camps. But it didn't really happen. And I think there was some, but it wasn't terrible. And I think it's because they weren't really allowed to mix with anybody. The biggest danger to them were the Greek workers who were coming and going from home. They also had this really strange policy on the Samos one of once somebody was infected, they were put in a quarantine area with their whole family, even if the family wasn't infected, which was guaranteed to get everybody sick. <laughs> that was a crazy policy. When you were there during 
the pandemic, you were, I guess, wearing a mask the entire time. Yes, I was wearing a mask. Although when I went to the first LGBTQ support group in person that they'd had since COVID, they invited me to come along. It was all very secret behind locked doors. We were in a room with no windows you could open, and there were about 28 people there. And I was wearing a mask, but many people weren't. I think that was the most dangerous thing I'd done COVID-wise, and I, I was in there for hours. But I was okay. I didn't get it, and nor did any of them. Being a white woman kind of put you in a position where you were able to do things that others weren't, and you also had your your passport as well. Are you British passport or American passport? Both. I'm a dual citizen. Actually, to get in the camp as an outsider, the only way I could do it was sort of to dress myself up so that I looked a bit more like a refugee. In other words, not wear a skimpy summer dress, you know, but wear long sleeves and um, long pants, headscarf. And I went in that way. I sneaked in that way. But everyone was so polite to me. I mean, all the refugees themselves were so nice and polite and welcoming. I felt so much safer with them than I ever felt with any of the, like, the police or anybody, the Greek police who were not nice at all, at least on Samos. Where were you staying? Uh, were you staying in towns and decent hotels? I would rent a place from a local, you know, try to give back to the economy a bit. And also because I like to invite people over so we could talk in peace and quiet. I couldn't invite a refugee to a hotel. They wouldn't let me do it, and it was possibly illegal. Even giving a refugee a ride in your car, you could be accused of human trafficking in Greece, which I didn't know because I was doing it all the time Till someone said, you realize you don't want the police to see you doing that. So um, that's why I would, I would pick a. The percentage of people from different areas, what did you see? Were the majority Middle Eastern and a small percentage African? What was, what was the split there? Yeah. Well, it shifted. So when I went in 2018, the majority by far was Syrian, and then next was Afghan, and after that, Iraqi. And very few Africans at the time, mostly Congolese. Next year, many, many more Africans. The year after, even more Africans, especially from the Congo, Somalia, Eritrea, but some other countries too. And then Palestinians began to show up more. And in other camps, there are quite a few Pakistanis coming through now, and probably Yemeni as well. But there are also Algerians. I mean, there was a mix of people, but but those were the major groups as far as I remember. Did most of them see themselves as political refugees or just refugees from war? How, how do they view themselves? Well, it just depended on the country, you know. So the Somalis were escaping from al-Shabaab, you know, which is the ISIS of, of Somalia. They were in danger of being killed or forcibly married to a, these are women I was talking to, to a fighter, the same kind of persecution that you would get somebody from somebody fleeing that Taliban. It's kind of political, but it's also just to save their lives as women. Some were part of dissident groups and were persecuted out of dictatorial authoritarian countries. I didn't really meet climate refugees, which I certainly would now. People escaping droughts or wars created by climate change. We're going to see more and more of that, of course. Helen Benedict, before we went on the air, you mentioned two guiding principles in the creation of the book. I'd like you to go into that and 
also in a more general sense how those guiding principles might or might not affect the rest of us well this does relate to what you said earlier about my being a white woman and i would add western white woman so i wanted to avoid the two pitfalls that that so many western journalists have traditionally done with stories like this one is to pigeonhole people just as refugees or just in a, mo- a moment of trauma and ignore the fact that they have whole lives and they had whole lives at home before they became refugees and that they have you know, dreams and hopes and love lives and disappointments and difficult parents and, you know, and, and things they love to do and things they hate doing, just like all of us. And I, we really wanted to capture that because it's part of our mission to remind everybody that, you know, not to just label people, but to see them as fully human. So that was one thing, and that's why each person gets three whole chapters, a chapter of their home lives, the chapter of from when the moment they had to flee in their actual flights, and the chapter of what happened to them when they got to Greece. The other thing that Western journalists do all the time and have traditionally done is tell people's stories for them. You know, and just use the occasional quote here and there as decoration, which is a newspaper style. And I felt that that was inappropriate for me as a Westerner to do that. And it was really important to give people a place to tell their stories in their own words, in their own way. So this is an unusual nonfiction book because it's a mix of narrative journalism and oral history. So, and Iad felt very strongly the same way because he, you know, he un- understands very much how much being a refugee means being denied your dignity and never being shown respect as a full human being and never being given a voice. Everybody who interviews you is mostly interested in proving you a liar. You know, the asylum services, they mostly, they will do it, try and trick you into, into giving them a reason to deny your asylum. The people in the book really appreciated that. It was very important for them to be able to tell their stories in their own words and have their own voices honored in that way. So those were the two things that we were determined to do. And how do you think those principles should affect all of us in terms of how we view refugees? I think this really goes to a lot of the reckoning that's been going on about identity and Western arrogance and white arrogance. And I think journalists have a lot to learn about this, which is to be less mercenary about the way we interview and to be more respectful to people. And I know there's a place for assuming everybody's lying, especially if you're dealing with politicians. I'm not sure that that's such a good principle when you're dealing with ordinary people who've gone through traumas. I would say it's better to presume that they're telling the truth and then just check. If you can't approach people with, with respect and a certain openness, you're not going to get anything very interesting out of them because they will sense that you don't trust them. I mean, just think about being interviewed by somebody you know doesn't trust you. It makes you nervous, it makes you defensive, and it makes you not like them and not want to talk to them. So I I think we can all learn from this. And I'm going to talk to my students more and more in in the future about rethinking the way we do interviewing, especially of of ordinary, everyday people. Politicians is another thing. Helen Benedict, I guess we come to the final question, which is a difficult one given that we are in a country, the United States, that 
is and will be in danger of a fascist takeover for the next probably 10 or 20 years in ways that could emulate Hungary or Turkey, maybe already has in some areas. But what can Americans do about what's happening? And we have our own refugee issues that we can fight over. But what do we do, say, about what's happening over there? This entire area that I knew nothing about before reading Map of Hope and Sorrow. We can volunteer to go work there, which a lot of Americans do, actually, and can be helpful if you volunteer with the right kind of organizations. In the last chapter of our book, we have lists of things that people can do, both on the policy side and, and the individual side, donating, voting for politicians who are going to uphold the values that we about caring about people in, in misfortune, because what we do in America affects everyone else, as we were saying earlier. I do take hope from the fact that surveys keep showing that the majority of people, including in this country, do believe that somebody who's fleeing persecution or war has a right to be treated with dignity and welcomed with kindness in their new country. Even if we don't hear that in the, on the right-wing side of the politics these days, most people do still believe that. That's something to capitalize on. You know, even if we fight it locally and it can drift upwards <laughs> and over, that can help. But it's a tough one. And if we're going to get another Trump type who's going to demonize refugees more and more, it's only going to make it worse over there. Helen Benedict, this book is out and you're doing your work for this book. Have you started on another? Well, the novel that I went to, <laughs> originally went to Samos for, I'm just finishing it up now. It's going to come out in 2024. It's called The Good Deed. You've been listening to an interview with Helen Benedict, who is co-author with Iyad Awadonin. The book is titled Map of Hope and Sorrow, Stories of Refugees Trapped in Greece. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>